this, this looks like a campaign on hospice care. He's, he's dying. He's just looking to surround himself with friends and family. Oh, man. That's rough. Rough trade. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. With I certainly am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people powered radio in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. And in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on the great AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, streaming on the internets, coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week, whether, whether the Earth likes it or not. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. As you may have noticed at the top of the show, yes, we are going to be talking in a little bit about uh, what is, well, let's, let's say a preview of the coming Republican Civil War. We are just getting hints of it now, uh, a taste of it now. I think, of course, depends on how the uh, the November election actually turns out. But I, I think we haven't seen nothing yet. But we're starting to see a lot of it. And so we're going to talk about that in, in a little bit. Um, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, also, uh, later here, uh, the Green News Report, our latest Green News Report with the lovely Desi Doyen. Hello, Desi Doyen. Hello. Uh, and uh, news on this massive New wildfire uh, forcing uh, well over 80,000 evacuations at this point down here in Southern California, uh, as well as a new report uh, finding that uh, getting rid of oil subsidies, fossil fuel subsidies, despite what the Republicans will tell you, uh, actually won't cost you or I much of anything. No, it won't be uh, added to your gas uh, costs. Uh, you'll survive it. I will explain shortly. Uh, and also does some news that I think is fair to say kind of blows. How's that? <laughs> yes, is we'll that, just leave, that, it leave it there. For the All moment. right. Some yes. news that kind of blows. <laughs> you'll have uh, to stay tuned to find out what that means. Uh, well, this seems like a very big thing today that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, According to the Washington Post, the Justice Department plans to end its use of private prisons after officials concluded the facilities are both less safe and less effective 
at providing correctional services than those run by the government. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates announced the decision on Thursday in a memo that instructs officials to either decline to renew the contracts for private prison operators when they expire or to substantially reduce the contract scope. The goal, Yates wrote, is reducing and ultimately ending our use of privately operated prisons. Wow. Quote, they simply do not provide the same level of correctional services, programs, and resources. They do not save substantially on costs. And as noted in a recent report by the department's Office of Inspector General, they do not maintain the same level of safety and security as government-run facilities do. Well, wow, that's big news. Uh, David Fathi, the director of the American Civil Liberties Union's National Prison Project, said that uh, the ACLU applauds today's decision and calls on other agencies, both state and federal, to stop handing control of prisons to for-profit companies. Uh, Man, uh, this really is something, and it does seem to have come out of nowhere. Here to talk about this today is Carl Takei. He's a staff attorney at the ACLU's National Prison Project. He litigates prison, jail, and immigration detention conditions, class action lawsuits in federal court, and performs advocacy on issues of mass incarceration, prison privatization, and immigration detention. Carl's advocacy work includes fighting against the private prison industry. Oh, big win for Carl today, I think. He is a lead author of the 2014 ACLU report, Warehoused and Forgotten, Immigrants Trapped in Our Shadow Private Prison System. Carl Takei, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Well, I suspect it might be on a day like today. Am I right? This seems like a pretty big deal, and it seems like it it has sort of come out of the blue today. Am I right on both of these points? And uh, if so, uh, why is this such a big deal as you see it, Carl? Yeah, we were jubilant when we got the news, which was uh, right around the time that the uh, Washington Post broke the story. Um, And uh, it it is something that uh, has been a pretty long, hard slog for us, but we expected it to be an even longer and harder slog than it turned out to be. Mm. Um, this, This announcement today is the result of years of pressure by the ACLU and other nonprofit organizations uh, and investigative reporting uh, by a range of reporters um, about the terrible conditions inside the Bureau's private prisons. So it's incredibly gratifying to um, see that uh, result in this plan to cancel all of the contracts. That's just amazing. The inspector general's report, speaking of some of the problems that I I guess led to this, and you cited a number of investigative reporters. I know that uh, Mother Jones did an extraordinary piece on private prisons. The Nation has been doing some great work there as well. But the inspector general's report uh, found a bunch of problems with these private facilities in comparison to the government-run prisons. For example, the private facilities, just by way of one example, had higher rates of assaults both by inmates and uh, both by inmates on other inmates and by inmates on staff and had eight times as many contraband cell phones confiscated each year on average, according to the report. And again, that's just one example. So uh, was any of that information in the inspector general's report? uh, Did any of that come as a surprise to 
well, to either critics or supporters of the uh, of the private systems? And and to what do you attribute the disparity uh, between those issues in private versus government run prisons? Why does that happen in the first place? Well, many of the findings in the Inspector General's report confirmed or just provided greater detail on our own findings in uh, the ACLU's 2014 report mm-hmm. on these prisons, Warehoused and Forgotten. And, uh, you know, we spent uh, five years investigating the uh, Bureau of Prisons' shadow system of private prisons and found that uh, they um, failed to provide for the health, safety, and, and, you know, live up to standards of basic human decency. And this all goes back to the profit motive. Handing control of prisons over to for-profit companies is a recipe for abuse, neglect, and misconduct, because their primary duty is to their shareholders. They have to deliver value to their shareholders Mm -hmm. by skimming a profit off of whatever payments the government gives them to to run the prison. Mm -hmm. And so what we're talking about, and I, and I think this is true also in a lot of cases where, we're, where the government, uh, whether it's Republicans or you know moderate blue dog Democrats are looking to privatize government functions uh, when it comes to school, health care, everything else. Uh, what was the argument? Is this the argument that was originally made? And I think we're talking like two decades ago at this point. Uh, was that the argument that was originally made when we went to these for-profit prisons that it was going going to save the government money somehow, that these private companies, they are more efficient, uh, they can run themselves more efficiently than government. Was was that the argument? Was that the same old argument we hear in all of these other industries as well? Yeah. Uh, in the 1990s, when the Bureau of Prisons first started this experiment with private prisons, uh, the argument was that uh, they could provide incarceration more cheaply and, uh, you know, that the innovations of the free market would somehow magically uh, make things better. And in fact, it just turned out to be far worse. Mm. Um, uh, you know, because it, the major way that you can make money off of incarceration is by cutting expenses. Some of the biggest expenses are uh, security staff, medical staff, uh, the, the um, you know, uh, and providing medical services. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, anywhere that uh, you the the company starts cutting back those expenditures. Uh, it, it ends up harming the people inside. Uh, one example from the Inspector General's report, for example, is uh, that for eight months, one of these prisons went without a full-time doctor. And the reason is that it was cheaper for the company to pay the understaffing penalties than it was for them to pay the salary of the doctor. Wow. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's amazing. And they have to make a profit. They are a for-profit company. The government, on the other hand, does not have to make a profit. Uh, why is this announcement uh, coming right now, Carl? Uh, is this due to the Inspector General's report or the investigative reports that uh, that you cited? Is it because of the declining prison population? Uh, is it because there's a new possibility of a new administration coming in and they want to, the DOJ wants to set a course for the future uh, or or something else? What do you attribute this to? I I think it's a combination of all of those factors. And one of the more important ones is that uh, the 
federal prison population is markedly smaller than it was just a few years ago. Uh, in 2013, there were almost 220,000 people in Bureau of Prisons custody, and today there are about 193,000. That is something that uh, provided the Justice Department with the flexibility to say, hey, you know, do we really want to continue these contracts and, and uh, gave mm-hmm. them a, a great deal of flexibility uh, in this case to say, no, we don't. This is not the path we want for the future. Um, and uh, it's um, great that they decided to take the moral and appropriate path of canceling the contract. And so we're talking about a, a very small number comparatively to the overall federal prison uh, population, right? Private prisons only account for, what is it, about 5 or 10% of the current uh, federal population, uh, prison population? It's about 11 or 12% of the federal prison population, which is, um, you know, you're right. It's not the majority, although that is still 22,000 people. Um, So, you know, when when you're talking about the number of people who are incarcerated uh, in the United States or or just in the federal system, which is one among many correctional systems in the U.S., the numbers get very big very quickly. And, And so this won't happen overnight right I, this is not uh, they're not canceling the contracts this is going to happen uh, it, it sort of phase out the federal prisons uh, to bend the trajectory away from them from these uh, from these private prisons am, am I understanding that process correctly or do are we all just sort of guessing at this point because this is so new yeah you're right it's a, it's going to be a multi-year phase out although uh, the impact is going to be seen within the next year uh, as they modify an existing rebid of of, uh, some of the contracts for prisons. Um, They had issued a solicitation for uh, 11,000 private prison beds, and that's going to be shrunk into fewer than 4,000 as a result of this announcement. Wow. So that, yeah, that is a big difference. Um, will this have any effect, or I guess I should say what effect, if any, does the uh, uh, the U.S. DOJ's announcement now have on the, uh, the privatized state prison system around the country? Those are completely independent, I guess, from the federal system, correct? Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't have any direct impact on state agencies, and it doesn't have any direct impact on the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the immigration detention system that's run by ICE. Uh, but the ACLU is hoping that these other agencies will follow the Department of Justice's lead and take a hard look at their own contracts, because it's the exact same companies that the Bureau of Prisons contracts with. And, and I think in particular for ICE and the immigration enforcement folks, uh, it's going to be very hard for them to defend their private prison contracts with these very companies in the face of the Justice Department's announcement, which which didn't mince any words. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quoting from the memo that was issued by the DOJ, uh, they they said uh, the private prisons compare poorly to our own bureau facilities. They simply do not provide the same level of correctional services, programs, and resources. They do not save substantially in costs, and they do not maintain the same level of safety and security. Um, And so it's not like ICE can say, oh, well, we're contracting with different companies. These are exactly the same companies with exactly the same performance Mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. 
Uh, Washington Post reports, of course, and this is to be expected, I suppose, that uh, that this could that this directive is likely to face resistance from those private companies that will be affected. I know there's a very powerful private prison lobby that I want to ask you about in a second. Uh, But the Washington Post reports that in response to the uh, inspector general's report, the private contractors running the prisons noted that their inmate population consists largely of non-citizens, presenting them with challenges that that the government-run facilities do not have. Uh, I know you focus on uh, immigration, detention, and so forth. So uh, let me ask you, what kind of uh, resistance first would you expect to see from the private companies, uh, the contractors in this case? And is there any legitimacy to their argument that government-run facilities uh, are different, that they have, uh, you know, different facilities, uh, different resources because they don't have to hold non-citizens. What's the difference there? And how would that affect uh, the the way these prisons are run in the way that these contractors are suggesting? Um, Well, the the, the defense of the private prison companies is just a red herring. It amounts to saying that uh, because the private prisons have more Mexicans than the uh, regular uh, uh-huh. federally run Bureau of Prisons facilities that uh, they're harder to manage. But uh, at least two previous national studies have included that, in general, private prisons tend to have higher levels of violence than comparable public prisons, even ones that don't have these sorts of differences in ethnic makeup. Uh, and in the ACLU's experience, where we've litigated against private prisons at the state level, um, the the violence that we've seen in those private prisons stems from the management practices of the companies, not from who is in the prisons or what color they are. Uh, you that, know, that, that's that the argument true. that they're actually yeah. making the argument that because these are non-citizens, because they're Mexicans or whatever, that those that those people are more violent, and that's why things are uh, are harder for in the in the private prisons. Yeah, what they said is that because it is a predominantly Mexican population, they are more violent and they're more gang-involved than uh, a similar U.S. citizen uh, federal prisoner population. Wow, but the actual evidence shows that where you don't have uh, non-citizens, but still in these private prisons, that the same problems uh, exist even with those non-citizens in those private uh, private prisons. Yeah, I mean, to take one example from the ACLU's litigation, uh, in Idaho, uh, we litigated against a uh, private prison um, that held state prisoners, and it was nicknamed the Gladiator School because it was so violent. There were more instances of assault inside that prison than the other seven prisons in Idaho combined. Wow. Wow. Uh, I'm speaking with Carl Takei, a staff attorney at ACLU's National Prison Project, about this remarkable announcement today that uh, from the U.S. Department of Justice that they are going to begin essentially shutting down the uh, the private prison system at the federal level. Now, uh, today's uh, announcement, Carl, seems to suggest that the private prison industry lobby perhaps doesn't have the, uh, the, the, the power that they once may have had. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. But I, I also uh, w- we spoke a few days ago about the um, about the DEA's d- decision to not uh, reschedule or deschedule marijuana. And we had a guest on from the Drug Policy Alliance uh, who suggested that one of the reasons 
reasons that the DEA uh, was refusing to do that was because they are, in his words, a rogue agency. They are rotten to the core. And that led a friend of mine after the show to suggest um, another reason for this is that uh, the power that the private prison industry, the private prison lobby, may have amongst the uh, amongst the DEA itself. So that's just one of the reasons I'm curious about your thoughts on the lobby uh, and where where their power is right now in Congress. Is it being diminished and uh, does it have the power that it used to among uh, both Republicans and Democrats alike? Well, the power of the private prison industry comes from uh, mass incarceration. These companies grew up in the shadow of mass incarceration. And, uh, you know, as prison populations continued to rise and rise, correctional officials ended up making a deal with the devil with these companies that they found it very difficult to get out of. Uh, But the more that the federal government and the more that state governments adopt criminal justice reform measures that get people out of prison, the more that that diminishes the power of the industry and diminishes their leverage. Can today's decision by the DOJ be reversed by the next presidential administration? We're talking about the, you know, the mass incarceration that started under, uh, well, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton, and we may have another Clinton in the White House. Uh, can that Clinton or a Republican, Donald Trump, can they reverse this uh, decision today? This is an executive decision, right? It is an executive action. So depending on who's president, um, you know, the the new president could change course. I I do want to note that uh, after uh, Bernie Sanders made private prisons an issue in Mm -hmm. the primary, uh, Hillary Clinton has uh, made a lot of comments about how... um, if she is elected president, she would uh, cancel private prison contracts. Um, and so I think based on that, uh, a Clinton presidency would be unlikely to undo this measure. Uh, as for Donald Trump presidency, uh, he has uh, floated trial balloons saying that he's potentially supportive of pri- private prisons, although it's a little hard to tell because he hasn't <laughs> Uh, said much about this topic specifically. So, yeah, actually, it was going to be my next question. Uh, would the Are the prospects uh, better or worse with a d- uh, Democrat versus a Republican in the White House? Uh, I guess you're suggesting it's potentially better with a Democrat, if only because she has given her position at this point uh, on this and that she'd be likely to continue at least what the uh, the Obama DOJ has done. Uh, before I let you go, Carl, or, or did I characterize that correctly? Your 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 general thinking? Yeah, that's right. You know, I, Hillary Clinton has taken a clear position against private prisons, and and um, Donald Trump has uh, floated trial balloons in favor of them, but hasn't really nailed his position down. All right, and just with this good news, before I let you go, Carl, uh, this is very positive news, and I think it has caught a lot of people off guard today. Uh, but just because I don't want my listeners to be too happy about anything, uh, we, what other problems are still important in regards to the uh, federal prison system, even if we shut down, or even when, at this point, uh, we shut down the, the private prisons? What, what will your concerns uh, move to in that regard uh, at the ACLU National Prison Project? Yeah, well... Um Everything goes back to criminal justice reform. There are still a tremendous number of people in the federal system who are unnecessarily serving extreme sentences driven by mandatory minimums that were adopted in the 1980s, 1990s, 
uh, and through much of the 2000s. Uh, and um, I think uh, in the next Congress, it's going to be very important to focus on um, making sure that uh, we do not create a return back to uh, where things were a few years ago, and that we actually make progress in continuing to reduce the federal prison population, because it is still astronomically larger than what it was in, say, 1970 or 1980. Are you confident? Uh, I've I've spoken with a number of Republicans and Democrats about this issue in, in recent months. They seem to feel confident that we really are heading in the in in the direction of criminal justice reform and that uh, something will be able to happen on a bipartisan level do you share that uh, do you share that confidence at this point um you know i think a lot depends on the outcome of the elections and um you know i i'm i'm cautiously optimistic uh but of course uh depending on um you know how these issues are discussed during the elections and uh you know what what sort of mandate uh various members of congress come in with mm-hmm. uh we we could end up with uh only a tiny bit of progress or we can could end up with uh major progress and structural reform and i'm hoping for the latter well, we will see what happens as we move forward, uh, and I'm sure we'll be giving you a shout again, Carl. Really helpful information today. Congratulations, I think, are in order to you and the ACLU uh, for your uh, years of work uh, bringing these issues to light. And, uh, hey, something finally happened, it seems like, it, going in the right direction. So congratulations there, Carl. Uh, Carl Takei, Takei, staff attorney at the ACLU's National Prison Project. Uh, follow their work at ACLU. And if you like, you can harass uh, Carl Takei on the Twitters at Carl Takei. That's C-A-R-L-T-A-K-E-I. Thanks again, Carl. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be on. Wow. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm still kind of stunned that this has suddenly just happened, uh, you know, kind of out of nowhere. This has been the argument, you know, for many, many years about, uh, you know, the effect of, of, of the privatization on all sorts of government uh, issues, as I mentioned at the top of the interview, on you know prisons, schools, healthcare, and everything else. And here you have uh, empirical uh, data, empirical information, and uh, a, a, you know very clear decision by the Department of Justice that no, the government does a better job at doing X than the private industry does. And that's just reality, as they have found and as so many, uh, uh, you know, proponents of, you know, Bernie Sanders proponents of uh, democratic socialism. Oh, it's socialism. We want to you know turn everything over uh, to the private sector instead of letting the government do it. No, there are certain things that the government simply does better. And that is a reality. And these are facts. And uh, but I don't expect uh, that to help when it comes to Republicans and their fight against reality and their fight to pretend that facts aren't really facts. Well, yeah, that's the limitations of ideology. You know, when your ideology dictates that 
only the free market, unfettered, yes. fundamental free market can take care of everything. The free market God will take care of everything you need. That is a limitation that the Republican Party and those who are free market fundamentalists don't want to recognize that, yes, yeah, sometimes data and evidence show you otherwise. And you're stupid if you don't follow that. Never mind your data and your evidence. We're going to come back and uh, take a quick break and come back uh, and talk about uh, reality and uh, what it means to uh, to this campaign right now and to uh, what is appearing to be a pretty uh, huge civil war either here or coming on the Republican side and the way they're dealing with reality over there. Quick break and we are back with that and much more. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Actually, uh, war in this case could be good for something. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I want to talk about the, uh, the, the coming civil war uh, or the ongoing civil war on the Republican side, depending on how you look at it in a moment. But uh, uh, just uh, very quickly, uh, thanks again to uh, Carl Takei of the ACLU on the uh, on this uh, remarkable news today about shutting down the private prison system, at least at the federal level. Um, I want to note here, uh, since he had mentioned Bernie Sanders' advocacy for exactly this during the primary campaign and Hillary Clinton eventually agreeing there, uh, credit, big kudos to uh, Bernie Sanders for making this an issue at all in the in the presidential race. Dave Weigel points out over Washington Post that after Corrections Corporation of America, that's one of these private uh, prison companies, the nation's largest private prison, private prison operator, in fact, he notes, uh, after they were revealed to make an average profit of $3,356 per inmate, Bernie Sanders says Weigel hardly finished a speech without attacking that private prison system. For example, in March of 2016, Sanders said, we cannot fix our criminal justice system if corporations are allowed to profit from mass incarceration. Companies should not be allowed to make a profit by building more jails and keeping more Americans behind bars. That was Bernie Sanders back in March, and he had been uh, saying uh, similar things uh, all year long during the primary on Thursday now, after the Department of Justice made its announcement that it's going to shut down this private prison system, Sanders was one of the first politicians to celebrate, says Dave Weigel. 
Uh, the uh, the statement he put out says, quote, it is it is exactly what I campaigned on as a candidate for president. It is an international embarrassment that we put more people behind bars than any other country on Earth due in large part to the private prisons. Incarceration has been a source of major profits to private corporations. Study after study after study has shown private prisons are not cheaper. They are not safer and they do not provide better outcomes for either the prisoners or or the state. Yay, Bernie. Conscience of a country. Now, that's a, a civil war that we also might see on the Democratic side as this fight continues against all of the privatization that has taken place over the past, uh, what, two, three decades at this point. This is a clear victory uh, on that front, it seems to me. Now that fight moves, of course, to the uh, state uh, prison system and so forth. But, um, yeah. It would be nice after so many decades of these memes, these myths being put forward that, you know, anything the government does could be done better by the private sector. It has been nonsense from the beginning. Study after study after study shows it. And yet Republicans and Democrats and blue dog Democrats, uh, where they still exist, those moderate Democrats have been making that same argument. So maybe we're finally beginning to see something change here, although I suspect that uh, civil war will continue on the Democratic side, even if or maybe especially if Hillary Clinton wins the presidency this November. We will see. Um, but moving back over to the Republican side now and their war, we spoke with Eric Bullert on yesterday's program about this, uh, this campaign shakeup, this campaign addition at uh, the Donald Trump campaign and the addition of Steve Bannon, the guy who has been running uh, Breitbart News for so many years since Andrew Breitbart died, since its founder, Andrew Breitbart, died. Um, we were talking to Eric just after the the news uh, had broken, just a few hours, and now Michael Calderon, and, and Eric was talking about the fact that there is going to be a reckoning, and this is something we've heard from folks on the right. We heard it from Charlie Sykes, that right-wing uh, radio host up in Wisconsin who was so far in the bag for uh, for Scott Walker during his uh, recall election a few years ago, gave him millions and millions of dollars in free airtime. Uh, Charlie Sykes has says there's going to be a reckoning after this is all over. We have created a monster. So they're just starting. So the right wingers themselves are starting to notice the problem here. Uh, but not all the right wingers. We sort of have right winger versus right winger at this point. Michael Calderon over at Huffington Post collected some of the uh, some of the responses from some of the folks on the right to Donald Trump's appointment of Steve Bannon, the, the guy who runs Breitbart News now, which describes itself describes itself on purpose as a quote populist nationalist site. It calls itself a nationalist site. Um, any idea? I can't remember. What what does Nazi stand for? Does that I have I think they something? called themselves nationalists. Oh, yeah, nationalism, so, yeah. yeah. Um, this has been viewed, of course, uh, the Breitbart site, as Calderon points out, has been viewed as Trump's biggest media megaphone throughout the entire 2016 election. This self-described populist nationalist site. In fact, as Calderon says, when Donald Trump descended the escalator at Trump Tower on June 16, 2015, and launched into a campaign kickoff speech that included railing against Mexico for supposedly sending drug dealers and rapists over the border. Steve Bannon saw a Breitbart newsreader at the podium. He said that speech really talked about the themes that have been on Breitbart. 
It's according to Huffington Post, just last month during the Republican convention in Cleveland, Bannon went on to say his thing on illegal alien crime was literally taken off the pages of Breitbart. And indeed it was. So that's one wing of our current Republican Party. And then you've got these other people who used to be considered far, far right wingers uh, who are now somehow the the sensible ones in this entire mess. Um Republican consultant Matt McCoyack uh, wrote that Bannon has ruined the Breitbart news operation by running it as a Trump super PAC full of sensationalized stories and Trump fan fiction rather than the sharp, muscular, anti-establishment vision the late Andrew Breitbart had for the enterprise. Well, that's debatable. But as uh, Bullard said on the show yesterday, it was a very different Breitbart News when Andrew Breitbart was running it than what it has become since. Charlie Sykes, as you heard uh, at the opening of this show, had this great response that uh, he tweeted out uh, about Steve Bannon being named as the uh, the head of the uh, Donald Trump campaign. Trump's campaign has now entered the hospice phase. He knows he's dying and wants to surround himself with his love loved ones, said Charlie Sykes. Uh, Stephen Hayes, again, another far right winger. Uh, It scares me that these guys are sounding sensible now. But uh, Stephen Hayes over at the Weekly Standard, uh, he's a senior editor there. He's a Fox News contributor. He declared on Wednesday that Trump had chosen to, quote, end his campaign living in the alternate reality that Breitbart creates for him on a daily basis. And that's what they do over at Breitbart. Over at Breitbart, Trump is not losing in the polls. It is the polls themselves that are skewed. And America is going to be in for a real surprise when Donald Trump wins this November. And, well, we'll see if they're right. But that's what they think. That's what they believe. That's what they tell each other. That's what they're peddling to their audience. Even Roger Ailes, the former Fox News uh, chief who was run out in this uh, sex harassment uh, investigation that is going on uh, now, alleged, I should say, alleged uh, alleged by uh, like 20 different uh, Fox News women over there, Um he is, he's now reportedly, according to The New York Times, advising Trump ahead of the uh, the presidential debates next month. He said in regarding Breitbart News that Fox is not nearly as right wing as Breitbart News. So that just gives you an idea what's going on at Breitbart. So you got sort of the the far right at Fox News versus the far, far right over at Breitbart News. Uh, it, it's crazy. Ben Shapiro, who was the Breitbart News editor at large for quite some time, who ended up quitting uh, in, a, in a fight with uh, Breitbart News after Breitbart News actually would not defend one of its own reporters who was allegedly manhandled by Donald Trump's previous campaign manager. Uh, ben Shapiro said that uh, that the Breitbart News site, quote, embraced white supremacy under Steve Bannon's watch, boosting the so-called alt-right. That's what they call them now. I guess I call it the far, far right. They call him the alt-right. Uh, Shapiro described Bannon as, quote, vindictive, a nasty figure infamous for verbally abusing supposed friends and threatening enemies. That's the guy who is now running the Donald Trump campaign. 
So this should be fun to watch what happens in the next, what, 80-something days? It could be just really, really, really ugly, too. Well, it, it will be really, really ugly, because this is sort of the point that I'm trying to get at. This civil war that will come, that is upon us, and that will certainly come uh, upon us after November if Donald Trump loses, as the polls currently suggest he will, it will not be a civil war over ideas, over substance, over policy. Uh, over even the direction of the Republican Party that it should go. It will be a fight over reality, a fight over whose version of reality uh, you know, they should actually pretend to believe in when neither of the versions of reality that seem to be coming out of the Republican side. Remember, it was Carl uh, uh, Rove many years ago. When he was uh, serving, I think it was 2004, when he was in the Bush administration, who said what? Reality is what we say it is. Yes. Um, and they would go about making up their own reality. So these people over at Breitbart who are making up reality, these people at the Trump campaign who are creating their own reality, where do you think they learned to do that? They learned to do it from these so-called sensible Republicans like Charlie Sykes and Ben Shapiro and Karl Rove and Stephen Hayes and all the rest. So if you need evidence of, of how unmoored these people actually are from reality, you probably heard this, uh, this audio from CNN, but it's so great. The more I hear it, uh, the more I enjoy listening to it. Uh, Brianna Keeler. Is that how you say her name? I Over think at CNN, so. uh, With Michael Cohen, special counsel to the uh, Trump organization. He's actually vice president to the Trump, uh, Trump organization. You may have already heard this, but let's play it again. Here he is, uh, Michael Cohen, talking yesterday, saying that the uh, campaign shakeup was not actually a shakeup. It was just an expansion. And Brianna Keeler has this to say in response. And we haven't edited this, so the silences you hear, they're in the original. All right, well, let me ask you about this. So you say you say it's not a shakeup, but you guys are down. And it makes Says sense who? that there would... Says polls, who? Most of them. All of them? Says who? Polls. I just told you I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is... So, okay, so my question is... So he had actually no real response to that. Uh, you know, he's down, according to who? The polls. Uh, this was actually a big victory for... Obviously, I guess he just does not believe in all of these polls. Poll after poll after poll. Well, he's not really paid to believe them, apparently. He's paid, apparently, to not believe them. Yes. To counter them. Uh, he thinks he did a fantastic job. According to Hunter Walker over at Yahoo News, Michael Cohen, executive vice president and attorney at the Trump Organization, said he believed he, quote, controlled the interview with Brianna, <laughs> Brianna Keeler. He said, quote, I think I unraveled her. Oh, boy. Now, uh <laughs> Hunter Walker goes on to point out that every poll included in the Real Clear Politics average since July 24 has Clinton ahead. Clinton has also been pulling ahead in recent surveys of key battleground states. Now, there was a poll out today from Pew that showed uh, Hillary Clinton's lead over Donald Trump decreasing a few points. So things could change. But the idea that, uh, that Cohen just had no Michael Cohen had no idea what she was talking about or pretended 
he told Yahoo News, I was shocked at the length of the silence as she stumbled to think of an answer. And when she did come up with an answer, it was so generic it could have applied to anything. Uh, Keeler, for her part, responded uh, and said, can you just embed the video in your story? My reaction is that people can watch and decide for themselves. She, she didn't even need to give a reaction to that. Cohen, however, said, I completely disagree with the polling information. He pointed to uh, Trump's poor numbers, for example, in the African-American community as evidence that the polls must be off. Cohen, who has been working with Trump since 2006, describes himself as fiercely loyal helped coordinate some of the candidates' African-American outreach efforts and says that his anecdotal experience contradicts the poll data. Uh, when they say that Donald Trump has a 1% favorability among African-Americans, uh, I know from my own interaction that that number is absolutely and unequivocally inaccurate. I speak on a weekly basis to more than 100 African-American evangelical preachers, and they are all committed to ensuring Donald Trump becomes the next president of the United States. He also cited crowd sizes as reason to believe that uh, Trump is going to beat Hillary Clinton. He said the proof is the massive 20, 25 and 30,000 person rallies that he is attending on a multiple time per week basis. He's not attending 20, 25, 30,000 person rallies. That's like larger than uh, most of our football stadium crowds. I think we would have heard about that. So he's off in a different world, and that fight about reality and about the world found its way onto Fox News between Eric Bowling, who's more in the alt-right Breitbart uh, side of things, versus Dana Perino, the former press uh, secretary for, uh, for George W. Bush. Incredibly, again, she's the one on the side of... <laughs> reality at this point i can't believe that i've got to get behind these guys but anyway so here here was a she and eric bowling and greg gutfeld on on fox news yesterday talking about this same thing these polls dana i'm honestly you, we, we have to stop with these polls they're insane with the polls you look at these just look what's going on you look at a trump rally and there's 12 15,000 10,000 people you cannot believe and then you look eric, at hillary clinton and you have I don't know, 1,500, 2,000. But that speaks it's a real, that's to a me. real disservice. That's a real disservice. 82 days out. It's a real disservice to, to whom? his supporters to lie to them that, the camp, that those polls don't matter. You cannot take 12,000 people at a rally that are your definite supporters. They are going to show up the campaign well, and then well, say the polls are wrong. She has that opportunity. But one too. person si sitting at home still cancels out somebody fair. at a rally. It's not here's fair. Why, here's why polls really shouldn't matter or shouldn't ever matter. You pick up the phone and you say, Will you, who are you going to vote for? That person on the other end of the phone says, well, I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. But They're not the, out there voting. But when the yeah, polls people are, are good, getting out in the, the street opposite. and going to a rally, those are people who get up off the couch and go hear something and go say something. That, that's why I think You're saying the motivated? size of crowds is more indicative of following or even yeah. polling but, than actual people. But, calling, but, calling, but I would say that a person sitting home getting up to vote cancels out the person there. It's the same value. That's exactly what we said in 2012. When people that supported Romney were told that the polls are wrong, Romney's going to win, and then they were so mad and disappointed. Yeah, they stopped watching because they thought we lied to them, yeah. and, they did, and we deserved it. Yes, they did, and it was uh, Fox News and Breitbart in particular who was leading the way back in 2012, telling them that all of the polls showing uh, Mitt Romney was not going to win, that those polls were actually being skewed by whoever, 
whoever was running them. And that is what they're doing again over at the Trump Organization, over at Breitbart. The polls are skewed. It's this. They're trying to trick you. So good for Dana Perino uh, for, for standing up. After she got off air, she, she put a bit of a tweet storm out there. She said, getting a few things off my chest cold when it comes to political analysis. I make you a promise. I will never lie to you, she said. Many of you write wanting me to tell you good things about the GOP chances this year. I wish I could do that, but I will not lie to you, she said. She continued uh, saying that she, too, believed in 2012 that the polls showing Romney was uh, trailing Obama, that those polls were wrong. She said, I felt sick election night, realizing I'd been suckered into a false sense of complacency. Romney was not going to win in spite of the rigged polls. And I vowed that night I would never, ever fall for that again. She says, you can't win a general election with the current state of this campaign. She said, some of you call me Debbie Downer, Negative Nancy, or even Pollyanna. I've been called a, pro a pragmatic snob, but I will not lie to you about the state of the race. I won't do it. No, matter, no, amount, of, no amount of peer pressure, digital or otherwise, can move me. Maybe you want the party to be at risk. Maybe it should be at risk, but I won't be a party to delusion that crowds are greater than established polls. Well, good, uh, good on her. <laughs> uh, for a change. Good on Dana Perino. But I'm pointing all of this out to say that the fight, the civil war will not be about policy or substance. It will be about reality and whose version of reality will win. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be not fun. I uh, And I think, by the way, it's going to take a whole bunch of years. It's going to continue on at least through the 2020 election uh, if Hillary Clinton ends up winning. Anyway, we've got years to discuss that. Quick break, and we're back with our Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the broadcast, uh, Desi Doyen. I got one story that just came in that I'm I dying know. to get to at the end <laughs> of the Green News Report. Uh, so we got to be quick about it. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. And in my 40 years of fighting fire, I've never seen uh, fire behavior so extreme as it was yesterday. Another new wildfire forces evacuations for 80,000 in Southern California. Every mile that we gain in fuel efficiency is worth thousands of dollars of savings every year. The Obama administration issues new rules for heavy-duty trucks. New report finds eliminating fossil fuel subsidies won't raise gas prices. Plus, America gets its first ever offshore wind farm. First ever? Yep. Really? Yeah. We suck. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Every time somebody says you can't grow the economy while bringing down pollution, it's turned out they've been wrong. 
Yes, maybe. But that's only if you believe in facts, Mr. President. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, California is beginning to pay a very, very high price for climate change as these fires out here are just getting insane and we haven't even gotten to the peak of wildfire season yet. Yep. Governor Jerry Brown has issued another state of emergency due to wildfire in California, this time in Southern California, where more than 80,000 people have quickly evacuated to escape a new fast-moving wildfire that exploded in size overnight this week in the mountains east of Los Angeles. In less than a day, the Blue Cut Fire expanded to 47 square miles Mm. with an intensity that state fire official Glenn Barley called unprecedented. This is a challenging year. One of the things that we're seeing is that the fires are burning in a really unprecedented fashion. It's to the point where explosive fire growth is the new normal this year. And that's a challenge for all of us to take on. Driven by high winds, extreme high temperatures, and tinderbox conditions, the Blue Cut Fire has already destroyed entire neighborhoods and shut down Interstate 15, the critical highway, railroad, and energy infrastructure corridor between Southern California and Las Vegas. And it's not just the U.S. In Brazil, Brazil's National Space Research Institute on Friday reported that fires in the Amazon have increased 65 percent over the same period last year. They theorize that the jump in the sheer number of fires is due to humans using slash-and-burn techniques to clear the forest for farms amid unusually hot and dry weather. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has confirmed NASA's report from a few days ago that July 2016 was the hottest month ever recorded in human history. And they added that July was also the 15th straight month in a row to break the monthly temperature record. Wow, this is just getting insane. I'm sure that people have stopped contacting you on Twitter claiming that climate change is a hoax, right? <laughs> oh, don't be silly. Oh. Some good news, though. The Obama administration this week issued its final new fuel efficiency rules, this time for heavy trucks that will cut emissions 25 percent over the next 10 years and save nearly $200 billion in fuel costs. In announcing the draft version of the rules last year, President Obama called the new standards a big win. And improving gas mileage for these trucks, that reduces carbon pollution even more, cuts down on businesses' fuel costs, which should pay off in lower prices for consumers. So it's not just a win-win, it's a win-win-win. You got three wins. Heavy trucks, buses, vans, and tractor trailers account for only 4% of vehicle traffic, but 20% of fuel use and transportation emissions in the U.S. You can take my expensive, stupid, heavy-duty truck fuel efficiency when you pry it from my cold debt... Oh, never mind. Meanwhile, a new report from economic researchers at Tufts University finds that three major federal subsidies for oil and gas drillers amounting to billions of dollars in taxpayer funding each year could be eliminated without raising gas prices very much, adding at most maybe two cents to the price of a gallon of gas by 2030. Two cents 
for each gallon by 2030? Yes. Okay, let's keep giving away those taxpayer dollars to the most profitable industry in the history of mankind. Finally, the U.S. has an offshore wind farm. What? The United States is late to the game after Europe's wildly successful offshore wind farms have been generating billions of dollars worth of clean energy for two decades. But this week, the U.S. finally installed its first ever offshore wind turbine. The first in a small wind installation off the coast of Rhode Island. So, hey, that's one. Meanwhile, just last weekend, we drove past dozens and dozens of offshore oil platforms. I guess no problem with that and all the oil that it constantly leaks on the beaches. But, you know, wind, that's a bridge too far. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please blow by our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and harass us on the Twitters and the Facebook, well, harass Desi, at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Against the wind We were running against the wind We were young and strong Stupid. Why have we been running against the wind? Why do it's, we not have these offshore wind farms? It has been very difficult. It's been a, a more than 10-year legal battle trying to get these things done. However, the Obama administration has pretty much cleared the path, and there are at least 11 um, leases that are currently about to start construction or in the process of approvals, and more to come. So good news. It's the first one, but there are more to come. And at the same time, the U.K. has approved the world's largest wind farm. This just happened. The world's largest offshore wind farm. It will be twice the size of London. Wow. So that's what they're doing already. And we're just getting a little tiny one off the coast of Rhode Island. Hey, it's a start. Big things have small beginnings. Speaking of, (laughs) I'm not even sure how. (laughs) All right, let me put it this way. Uh, So uh, some jarring uh, statues of a new Donald Trump are beginning to appear in locations around the country on Thursday, including in New York City's Union Square, according to uh, Kristen Salaki at uh, Talking Points Memo just in. Uh, The statues were created by members of the art collective In Decline, whose members work anonymously. Uh, The statues feature Trump's signature hair and stout frame, but have a few few playful additions, including pink nail polish and a Masonic ring. But they are nude statues of Donald Trump, colored and very lifelike uh, looking uh, statues. 100% full frontal. Yes. (laughs) Statues popped up in various cities, including Cleveland, New York and L.A., and um, might I say, not yeah. the most attractive statues. Well, uh, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends what you're looking for. Each bore a plaque at its base that read, The Emperor Has No Balls. Uh, the uh, statue uh, in Union Square was reportedly removed by the Parks Department. And this is the best part of the story. Around 1.20 p.m. today, leaving only the base and feet of the statue as proof that it had been there. When asked for a statement about the statue's Removal later in the day. Oh, man. Uh, and this is confirmed. They actually, this was their statement. The New York City's Parks Department said, New York City Parks stands firmly against any unpermitted erection in city parks, no matter how small. <laughs> that comes from Sam Biederman, Assistant Commissioner for Communications at New York City Parks. Well done, Mr. Biederman. 
My thanks to uh, to Desi Doyen, our producer today, as usual, and Carl Takei of the ACLU's National Prison Project. And my thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it at bradblog.com anytime for free. Uh, you can also... Yeah? Are you still laughing? You can also email me bradcast at bradblog.com or meet me on the or find me on the facebooks and the twitters at the brad blog that's it knock it off until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world